Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. If I spontaneously combust with excitement during today's Irish Times Second Captain's podcast, please forgive me, but there's just so much sport happening at the moment. Murph Ken. Oh, Mr. McDevitt, no, we're sick of sport. We can't oh, take no. it. <laughs> we're tired of sport, Mr. McDevitt. No, we're not. We're not tired, we're not of, tired sport. of sport. We're not tired of sport. And if you spontaneously combust, on I mean, we're going to put out the fire first. We'll I mean, we'll, fire, deal with yeah. the, we'll deal with whatever needs to be said afterwards. But I mean, first of all, I'm going to wrap you in a large blanket, cut off the oxygen. Isn't that it, Ken? Cut well, off the oxygen. No, you, yeah, you, oxygen feeds the fire. So, I mean, obviously you might be in trouble. But I'm, I'm going to say that maybe your body goes on fire. No, I, need, I still need to be able to breathe. No, I'm going to have to wrap you in a, warm, in a, in a blanket. Completely douse the... That's the only way to douse the flames. But then, if then you I'm don't gonna, have a water source. As, asphyxiation becomes an issue then. Listen, we're getting too deep into this. No, I'm going to... No, spontaneous combustion comes from the... I would say the, the body, not from the head. Right. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to cover your head with a blanket. Oh, I'm going to wrap right. you tightly in a blanket. Now, obviously, the burns will be... <laughs> my Olympics hero. The smell of burnt hair. Here's your Olympics hero. <laughs> well, no, just from the final day. Oh, yeah, my overall hero. Oh, I don't know. I might have to think about that before the end of the, the show. But my Olympics hero from the final day in Rio. Yeah. Federico Bruno. Oh, yeah. Argentinian marathon runner who finished in 137th place in a not amazing, not very good time at all, really, for that level what was of running. This, what was the time? Two hours, 40 minutes and five seconds. Pretty awful. So only... I'd say Ian O'Reardon of the Irish Times isn't too I, far I'd off that. I'd say Ian O'Reardon's not far off that. Fintan O'Toole's only about 45 minutes off that, if you heard our radio show yesterday. <laughs> uh, certain, I'm not sure why I kept watching this so long after the completion of the race for medals, but the marathon hooks me in that way. The real stories can lie yeah. <laughs> further back, back in the 120, 130. He, he, he wasn't wearing position. a banana suit, was he? No, he wasn't doing that, Murph. I liked seeing the Iranian runner, for example, collapsing and having to crawl his way over the line. I enjoy the American Meb Kev, Kev, I can never pronounce his name, even though he's run four Olympics at this age. Meb, the American runner, who uh, tripped up about six inches from the finish line, but turned potential humiliation into absolute crowd-pleasing glory by pounding out a few press-ups before <laughs> going across the line. I like that. Now, he was in fairness, he finished about seventh or eighth, so I wasn't going too far down the line for, for old Meb there. But my pal Bruno, yeah, the Argentinian, he was the best one, looms into view in the distance. And you're looking at him going, wait a second, is he... Is he hobbling sideways? He's running slash hobbling sideways towards the finish line. 
No banana suit, Murph, so I don't think he was taking the piss. Although that did, for a second, I thought, is he, is he playing to the crowd here? And then pretty What's quickly... really the difference between finishing 125th and yeah, 135th? No, as he explains afterwards, I cramped everywhere, even my mouth. Look, my hand is cramping now, he said in a TV interview after the race, with his hand twisted. I ran as I could. Probably shouldn't have been doing interviews, I would argue at this point. Mm. Maybe do something to ease out those cramps. I ran as I could, from the side at times, also all, all hunched over. It looked like a 100-year-old man. Well, not really. A 100-year-old runs better. So Federico is still in good spirits after competing his Chris ever. trying to figure this out. Like, what? Well, he's scuttling kind of crab-like. His hamstring is going, so he's using the... So his legs don't have to, to bend. Yeah, it's certainly. Just, yeah, he's using yeah, the muscle yeah. at the side of his hip to sort of run mm. sideways. I'd imagine at least one or two people listening have probably had to do this. Uh, haven't quite had to resort to that myself. Mm. Well, I think most, most of them probably just say... Unfortunately, I couldn't finish. The yeah, marathon. and there were other marathon runners who didn't finish uh, in the in the Olympics. So that was an option open, Federico. But he got there in the end. The biggest political statement came from that race as well. Actually, the I didn't know what the silver medalist was up to. The Ethiopian Faisa Lilesa was crossing his arms in a sort of X. I thought he was an exhibit fan. Jose Mourinho <laughs> is the man who yeah. made that gesture famous: the handcuffs. Mm. I thought, what was he doing? Um, but it turns out that in fact it was a political protest. Yeah. Um, and he repeated it then at the flower ceremony. Afterwards, he was obviously the silver medalist, so he was involved in that. And it was a political protest uh, against the situation uh, back in his home country of Ethiopia. Uh, so apparently he is the um, he is a member of the Oromo ethnic group right. um, who are not, let's say, holding the whip hand in Ethiopia politically. That's the Tigray ethnic group. And he was claiming the Ethiopian government is killing my people, so I stand with all the protests anywhere as Oromo is my tribe. Uh, and also mentioned that he wasn't sure what was going to happen to his family, who are currently in Addis, back in Ethiopia. So, uh, or, uh, or whether he's going to go back there. Um, I guess what I'm waiting for, Owen, is for the IOC to fine him uh, and, and come down on him really hard, because that's the way they respond to political protests yeah. uh, at their events. Uh, the latest on the ticketing scandal again is the Brazilian police want to seize the passport of John Delaney. Well, um, it's not just uh, it's not just John Delaney, uh, Owen, but he is one of uh, six uh, other OCI figures uh, who have who are now uh, of interest uh, to the Brazilian police. Also on the list are acting OCI president William O'Brien. You might have seen William O'Brien do do a. We played uh, a clip of that last week. Yeah, his, he was the interim. He, he was supposed to take over from Delaney for a short period. From, uh, from, from Pat Hickey. Pat Hickey yeah. Until then, Delaney, this is according to Pat Hickey's succession plan. <laughs> Delaney was going to take over from him. But yeah, so he did the press conference outside, or the, the briefing outside yeah, the hospital. He skillfully swatted aside the uh, queries <laughs> of the world's press. Um, <laughs> uh, Linda O'Reilly, Dermot Hennehan, Kevin Kilty, and Stephen Martin, also OCI officials. Uh, Hennehan, Kilty, and Martin had to surrender their passports. Uh, and we're told to appear at a police station for questioning. Um, this is according to Tom Hennigan in the Irish Times. Um, police also took computers, mobile phones, and what is believed to be a significant number of unused tickets that had been held in a safe. The judge justified the search and seizure warrant, saying it was necessary to elucidate the modus operandi of a criminal association. John Delaney, not in Brazil. John Delaney could run anything. Uh, he is not there, and, and according to some reports, in fact, was never there. When we were speaking with Dion Fanning a couple of uh, weeks ago, or just at the beginning, of, around the beginning of the Olympics, in connection with the um, League of Ireland, the, the St. Pat's um, dispute 
uh, with the FAI. Yes. We mentioned that Delaney was in Rio, which is where we thought he was, as he's, he's on the OCI, but it seems as though maybe he wasn't there, and he's definitely not there now. Off to see the Queen tomorrow, too. Don't forget that. <laughs> I'm not sure. He wasn't there. Was he off to see the Queen again? I don't think he was seeing her again. Well, maybe. You generally get one audience with the Queen. It, do you really need any more time with the Queen? It's it's always an awkward interaction, I'd imagine, with the Queen. Anyway, no matter who you are, I, I don't think the convers- the Queen does her best, but it's just an awkward enough conversation, isn't it? Like small talk. Uh, Sorry. Anyway, continue with the latest. So, I mean, that this is this is the latest. I mean, as to what's as to how it's going to work out from John Delaney's point of view, um, well, it's not it's not it's not an extradition matter. Put it that way. Um, you know, it's it's a case of. Uh, he, the Brazilian police, would like uh, to speak to him, but he's not there. Mm. So it's hard to see how that conversation is ever going to take place. Uh, however, uh, this is obviously not a uh, not a good situation not not a good situation for John Delaney to have become embroiled in this. And it seems as though um, some of the information uh, that the Brazilian police were acting on comes from Pat Hickey speaking to them in jail, right? And I wonder what else he's going to have to say to them. Well, according to the police at the weekend, it sounded like they didn't get much out of that conversation. They kind of said, well, you know, he wasn't very... I don't know the exact words in front of me, so I want to be getting this right. But the impression that was given by the police was that uh, there wasn't... It wasn't exactly a, a totally enlightening conversation, shall we say, with Hickey. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't totally enlightening. Um, but this is where... Uh, this this is, <clears throat> according to Tom Hannigan, the warrant was issued after Mr. Hickey told police in an interview last Thursday that it was a decision by the whole OCI executive ah, committee okay, yep. to nominate British company THT as its authorised ticket reseller for the Rio Olympics. Um, so that's uh, so that seems to be where they um, where they got the information that they should uh, so speak says, to yeah. all these other people. So Patrick says this is a board decision, and the police say, "Well, let's go find the board here." Essentially, yeah, it seems to be what's what's going on. All right, I'll see uh, see how that one goes. The oh yeah, story we're going to talk about today in quite a bit of detail is Caster Semenya, her eight hundred meters victory yesterday in really dominant fashion. Uh, not yesterday, it was Saturday. I'm getting my days mixed up at this stage in the Olympic Games, but it was a new South African national record. It was a really really fast time, one of the fastest times in Olympic history. Not that anyone was surprised about this, and I don't think anyone was surprised, especially if you heard our podcast a couple of weeks ago, that she had to deal with questions about the uh, idea of a hyper-androgenic woman competing in these games, uh, in uh, Olympics, in women's events without any limit on testosterone. Now, this is something that the IAAF had put a limit in place to try to deal with this uh, issue. That was that limit, the idea of uh, limited testosterone was challenged successfully in the Court of Arbitration for Sport, not by Semenya, actually, but by another athlete. Uh, it's a story we looked at in advance of the Games. It was obvious then it was going to blow up which, if she won, which she did. Uh, even just a couple of hours before her race, Sebco, the IWF president, said again that the governing body will go back to CAS to try to overturn that decision and they feel that they're confident that the move will succeed. We're going to talk to Ross Tucker today, Professor of Exercise Physiology in South Africa, better known to you as at Science of Sport on Twitter. I'd imagine he's been getting a lot of heat there for his view that the IWF are actually right to have concerns and the right to try to place a testosterone limit. He sees that as the best compromise in a highly complex um, argument. So we'll get into all that with Ross a little bit later on. Always a good guy to hear from in these sort of matters. We're also going to get into Conor McGregor's win in the Nate Diaz rematch. But let's start with Mayo through to another All-Ireland final. 
Carl Mannion and Mike Quirk, who's going to talk to us in a second. How are you, Carl? Great, Owen. How are you? I'm pretty good, and I'm thinking that may all be feeling pretty good about things. I know they were far from perfect at times yesterday, but it's not the worst way to go into an All-Ireland final, is it? No, like, you have to be very happy to be in an All-Ireland final, no matter what year you get there. And Mayo have gone into All-Ireland finals before in great form, loads of expectation around it, and didn't produce. But they're going into a final now where there's going to be very little expectation about them. They're not playing with much form. They're playing in patches, uh, but they're still in the final. Uh, they lost the last two semi-finals after replays. Uh, and in both those, uh, on all of those four games, they would have demonstrated a lot of really good quality football. Didn't get them anywhere. But now they're in a final. They've just fallen into it. And, you know, it's a better place to be than out. Yeah, well, they've fallen into it from the semi-final, but they do have that quarter-final result because... I, I guess people will be listening going, well, hang on a second, if they're playing so badly, that's not a great way to go in at all. Yeah. I, there's just something to me that feels that they showed enough in that Tyrone performance to prove that they, they could potentially turn it on on the day. If you're going by yesterday, you'd, you'd assume they probably wouldn't be beating Dublin or Kerry. Yeah, it was the one thing they have shown in the Tyrone game and even yesterday when you know they weren't playing well, it's just that, that steal, that experience, that you know the game had to be won. When the game was on the line, they were able to step up, get their scores, they were able to then hold off Tipperary. They were able to hold off Tyrone in that game. And that's just experience that's garnered over years and years of unfortunate losses, dramatic losses to the likes of Kerry and Limerick. And you just learn lessons from that. And they learned the lessons from all those bad, bad losses in those games. And that was the kind of reason they've been able to go the line the last two games. Yeah, and uh, I, I saw... Um Quite a few male people immediately latching on to the fact that they haven't had this epic game yet. And they, like, to be fair to them, in the last six years, they've had one game where, for better or worse, they've played brilliantly. They've come out one-point winners or, one po- or you know, drawn the game or lost in chaotic circumstances in games played far from Crow Park. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, like, the story has always been high drama. And there hasn't been any high drama left or, so far this year, which leaves them with one game to leave it all out in the out in the line in the All-Ireland Final, which you'd have to say is not is a pretty good situation for them. Yeah, the range of emotions that Mayo fans have experienced yeah. in the last four or five years is incredible. Possibly, is there any other team in GA that's rivaled them for like the ups and the downs, the moments in games like, you know, where they look like they're gone, then see they're back in it, the losses like they had like in, in Limerick against Kerry that time. The range of emotions is incredible and the relationship that Mayo fans have with their team is pretty unique in, in mm. GA, I think. But yeah, now like they've nothing to hang their ho- uh, ha- uh, coat on like going into this final. Like you know, what do they talk about like to get themselves going? Like what are they going to write their songs about? Murph? Like <laughs> it's a very, it's going to be a very subdued way for them to go in. But uh, yeah, it's possibly a way that the team would like to go in now. You know, like you know, they feel like they have a lot to prove after where they've performed this year. So yeah, they, and then they also have a couple of games where they have showed a little bit of form, like the, the 10 or 15 minutes yesterday before half-time, the way they were able to see out the Tyrone game, uh, and then the patches they had in some of the qualifiers game before that. They have shown some things, but yeah, it's putting it all together now into one mix in, in one big performance is the thing. Mike Quirk, if you were a Mayo footballer this morning, would you be pleased enough at where you're at? You'd have to be. You'd have to be. I mean, you know, people were very negative, you know, yesterday at times with their performance. I mean, they didn't score for about 18, 18, 19 minutes in the second half. I think they gave away something like nine frees from, you know, from all all scored against them in in the scoring zone. And they did so many things wrong that you'd have to be delighted to get a result. You know, inevitably last week they were looking at Tipperary game saying, yeah, we'll have to respect them. We'll have to give them, you know, all 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 the credit they deserve. But realistically, they knew in the back of their minds that barring a complete 
you know, collapse, they were going to be in an All-Ireland final after beating Tipperary. So from the players' point of view, then it's really, really difficult to get yourself on that kind of knife edge to, to really perform at the highest possible, you know, place that you need to be at when when you knew you were going to win the game and get to the All-Ireland final. And, and I know after, when it was 6-3 with 25 minutes to go, maybe it didn't look like that, but Mayo were always going to win that game. And they knew that from, from the week previous and it's really difficult then mentally to just to get yourself to the picture where geez we really got to perform here and the likes of you know it was Andy Moore and again yesterday I thought Andy like no one mentioned Andy Moore I thought Andy Moore was unbelievable in the first half yesterday he, he was the guy that really kept him from from going underwater for for long spells and those Keith Higgins and all those kind of guys the older guys those leaders really stepped up in that in that kind of a period when they were when they were waning a small little bit and and, and got him over the line but uh, I, I think Mayor in an absolutely unbelievable position going into an All-Ireland final against either Kerry or Dublin and they'll be completely written off and it's probably the greatest thing that could possibly have happened to them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the, that kind of trying to get yourself to the right psychological pitch because Mayo seem only capable of doing it for 10 or 15 minute spells in games this year. I mean, they scored 1-7 in 9 minutes towards the end of the first half which means they scored 1-6 in the rest of the game. Mm. So, I mean, like that's a crazy... Uh, spreading out of scores. I mean, what do you think teams can actually do to try and stop stop that happening? Nothing, nothing. It's it, like I'm sure Rochford and all all their all their you know Tony McEntee and all their backroom team were all week preaching about the dangers of Tipperary. How Tipperary have scored goals against everybody they've played this year. They scored two against Kerry in a Munster final. They have you know the real threats of Sweeney and, and Quinlevin up top with, with Atchison and these guys running at him and they would have been preaching how you know how dangerous they are but at the, at the same time and Carl I tell you if you're if you're a player and, and you're that Tipperary team and you know you just know on the back of your head we're good enough that we've been here before we they haven't been there they're happy to be in a semi-final where we're only using a semi-final as a as a vehicle to get to the final our ultimate goal and and they would have known, you know, and of course they can't say it publicly and they have to do all that kind of nonsense talk, but they knew they were going to be Tipperary and, and it's just impossible. You cannot, there is no way to bluff your own mind to say <laughs> we're actually going to fall off a cliff here if we don't do this. So they they, they knew and, and then that's why then you get a little blast where, where you get that nine-minute spell where the likes of Keith Higgins kind of go, okay, lads, you know, we're going to win the game, but we need to actually do something now and, and you get those guys that'll, that'll get you there, but uh, it's it's just, we, we played, we, in 2009, we played, we played, remember that, that Dublin quarterfinal there, um, you yeah, oh, yeah, well yes, I, um, I have a vague and, uh, recollection of the start of the Yeah, right vague, here. vague, yeah. But, but, and, and we actually played, and nobody probably ever remember, we played Meath in the semi final that same year in, in a really similar game to, to, to yesterday, in a game that Kerry knew they were going to beat Meath all day long in that game. And it was a desperate, dour slugfest where we won it by two or three points in the finish, and people were saying, ah, I don't know, I don't know about Kerry. And it, it, because you're there and you know you're going to get over that, and, and, it's just really hard to get yourself up to the to the right pitch of it. Yeah, like in the first half there uh, and the opposing uh, periods of dominance that the two had, that was like the fundamental difference in uh, an inexperienced team coming into a, fi- a semi-final like this and an experienced team coming in. 
like uh, Tipperary and Fairness seem to have their homework done early on like you yeah. know they were able to take advantage of the Mayo bigger men around the middle drop their kickouts a little shorter like you saw them the Tipperary uh, midfielders running onto the ball like today the way Connolly or Flynn does for Dublin then Bill Maher and Hannigan and a few more, more were able to find the gaps down the middle of the Mayo defence so tactically I think Tipperary nailed it early on but it was the execution of that that showed their inexperience you know they fluffed their lines a bit they didn't take create the goal chances that they should have created with the overlaps they had and then the, uh, the other side of that is that Mayo when they got the period of dominance that showed the experience and the roots since they have won seven in uh, ten minutes yeah I mean it's, it, there's no doubt Tipperary will have a couple of regrets here because they, there were a few times where they, were, they had three on twos with a guy who had the ball in his possession right in the middle of the field crossing the 45 and it's just a case of Taking the right, two or three players taking the right option, and it's a ha- you know it's a hand pass goal yeah. into the yeah. into the back of the net, and it just it just didn't happen for them for whatever reason. But like they opened up Mayo a, like a good number of times, particularly in that first half, in the say the first twenty five minutes of the first half. Yeah, like they seem to be able to uh, get the runners in a bit of space uh, and get the Mayo team to one side of the pitch that allow when the ball is moved back to the middle that were able to break like the line, get the two-on-one to get through the, the Mayo mm. defence. In fairness, when they did break through, the Mayo the full-back line were pretty good not to give them the hand, an, an easy goal chance. They made it uh, that the Tipperary team had to produce a nice, slick move to get through. So, for example, when Atchison had that one chance when Kieran McDonald was beside him, yeah. that was a three-on-two, but yet the Tipperary didn't develop that perfectly when it should have been like a one-on-one with the keeper rather than Colin Boyle and someone else coming across and blocking him. Yeah. So, Do you think was that, was that because uh, Barry Warren was playing so deep as a sweeper that basically there was no chance that the Mayo sweeper would ever have pushed out on, you know, a guy carrying the ball over the forty-five. As far as Mayo were concerned, we we'll let Tipperary kick the point for, in a situation like that and make sure that the the goal chances is, isn't even presented. Yeah, I think it was. So, say for example, I'm Barry Moore and back on the full forward line, looking at uh, Connor Sweeney and Michael Quinlan beside me, and I see George Hannigan or Bill Maher coming through. I'm going to let them take the shot rather than yeah. letting them slip it to Quinlan beside me, who will stick it in the net. Yeah, so that's what a sweeper would do in that situation. He would assess who, who is the most dangerous person and let them clip a point or uh, create a, a half chance of a goal chance for themselves. Do you like the big man as sweeper, Mike? It wasn't. It was interesting, though, wasn't it? It was. A, it was a. I mean, like we, people were looking at at McLaughlin, and 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 I thought he he actually in that Tyrone game was was the best game that he had played in that kind of role, and he seemed to be getting more comfortable in 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 what he was supposed to do, and and marrying that in with with an ability to get forward and give him a bit of pace up front. And then they abandoned it totally for Tipperary. You know, uh, I was I, it was strange. I'm sure Barry Moore, Barry Moore, and obviously did it a couple of times last year. But um, it's yeah. I, I mean, it worked fine. I mean, they, they didn't concede. They didn't concede the goals. And I suppose that was the ultimate aim of, of of the sweeper. I'm not sure if he'd be there again if it's Dublin or Kerry. You know, maybe if it was Danny, maybe he'd be inside there again. Uh, it, it was strange. I thought he I thought he did it well, but he's just not. He he looks. He's not the atypical kind of sweeper guy that we associate to Keno Sullivan gliding across the floor. He's more of a, you know, like a giraffe kind of loping around, you know. But he's he's getting his head on stuff, he's getting his hands on stuff. And and I thought I actually thought he did, he had a fine game. He he didn't cross the halfway line once. He won his ball in the middle of the field, and and he was very kind of um, you know just just destructive around the back there, winning those high balls and. Different, but I suppose Ratchford. You know, if if they had lost the game, he'd be heavily criticised for it for for abandoning the McLaughlin experiment. But uh, I'm not so sure if if we won't see him McLaughlin. I mean, in that role again, if you know, if it's Dublin or Kerry. Yeah, the Mayo sweeper, whether it's McLaughlin or, or more, yesterday they tend to stay in the full back line and they don't stay like ten or fifteen yards out in front, sweeping over and back. Like yeah. Even McLaughlin, even though he has that mobility, he doesn't do that. He sits, seems to sit back, and it's. 
basically just protect the it's goal. Golf. It's yeah. protect the goal. Like Moran yesterday, yeah, even when they were running through, he just stayed right in the 14. Yeah. And even when Quinlevin and Sweeney ran out by him, he was still staying there right in front of the goal. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting. You know, like I've, I've, you know, what we've all said is that if Mayo can stop conceding goals in big games uh-huh. in August and September, they've got a chance. So instead of saying Kevin McLaughlin should be playing like Keno Sullivan, you know, it's a different sweeper for a different team. You know, yeah. like, like if Dublin concede goals, then that's fine. They, they probably have the scoring ability to to do the business at the other end. But I mean, if Mayo can ensure that they don't concede goals and that actually moves them up a level, you know what I mean? Like it actually yeah. gives them a much better chance of winning these games. So, I mean, maybe it, maybe instead of saying he's not Keno Sullivan, maybe we should be saying he's not Keno Sullivan, but he's tailored to a very specific need in the Mayo team. Yeah, so then you're putting your all your chips on that, you know, you're not going to be outscored on the points. So yeah. uh, I would think the way Dublin are playing currently at the moment, for example, the way they're holding on to the ball and moving over and back and picking their time to the attack, that you know they're going to be able to pick off enough scores and retain enough possession because they're not getting pressed high that they would be win a game. Same with Kerry, they're very clever forwards. Yeah. Kerry aren't going to play into Mayo's hand by uh, putting balls in there where Barry Moore and Kevin McLaughlin sweep up. They're going to pick off their scores, retain possession like they're very good at because they're natural footballers. So yeah, like while it's working now at the moment and it's functional for Mayo, I don't think it's a brand leader by any stretch of the imagination. It, it, it is a sweeper system that can be broken down by a really, really good team. So they'll have to be a lot better at it, I think, in the final in order to see it uh, prove any success for them. I'm glad Mike mentioned Andy Moore earlier on. Murphy, you know he's one of my favourite players. And yeah. even in the post-match interview, I just like this, there's a sort of defiance about Andy Moore and, and uh, there's obviously... Uh, high skill level and all that kind of thing but uh, I don't know if he's a particularly popular player but I like watching him anyway Carl. Oh no certainly Andy Moran is loved within in, in, within Mayo uh, and he's well respected all around Connacht and I believe as anyone can tell from the way he's uh, reacted on social media he's a much loved player I think around the country yeah he plays with his arm in his sleeve he uh, has heart in his sleeve yeah and it's as though he, he does believe you know sometimes you, you have your doubts as to whether these guys can keep coming back do they actually have the belief I I get the sense when I see him play and when I hear him talk that he does believe that he could he could eventually get yeah. there. Yeah, I know he has a defiance and I think a lot of these senior Mayo players have the defiance. Maybe some of them aren't as uh, aren't as obvious of with it yeah, like, but they, yeah. they have it like like Aidan O'Shea, like the way he drives at a team mm. there like for he did in the first half That's his defiance, like like Lee Keegan bombing forward, Kevin Keith Higgins bombing forward, that's their defiance. Moran just tends to be interviewed with more and he shows it in Moran when he's celebrating scores yeah. that it's more obvious for him, yeah, but it's it's in them Mayo players. That defiance is there, like, you know, that they they believe they can win. Mike, what does the tip run to the semi final tell tell us about what other teams can do I mean, is, it the, is it the case that other mid-ranking teams and lesser teams can get to where they're at are there a specific set of circumstances around the tip team maybe particularly the couple of talented forwards uh, and a smart coach that, that everybody needs yeah they're, they're a real anomaly though I mean I, I don't I, the biggest difference that they've had as I probably mentioned last time is I, I, I just think they've been blessed with a couple of really 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 talented inside forwards that the other guys that the other kind of mid-ranking teams don't possess you know the, the Sweeney's and, and, and Quinlevin are, are two guys who would you know who would be in and around most most county squads you know your 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 carries like they, those guys would either be starting or they'd be certainly in the mix of, of, of coming on and you know and if you have those high you know really high high IQ and high quality guys inside the likes of Tipperary then who previously would have done you know they would have done a load of the good work and then they'd get up inside the opponent's 45 and they just wouldn't have the finishers and and I know yesterday we're saying that they had other chances that they could have been more ruthless and got a couple of goals but I, I just think those guys give them such a great chance that that you know those those other teams just don't don't have those really quality inside guys you know and, and I mean Sweeney again yesterday I thought Sweeney 
Sweeney was really good. I've been so impressed with him this year. He he, he won a horrific ball and he still kicked scores and he won frees and you know, Quinlevin the same. They're just you know, and, and next year it'll be really interesting to see what Tipperary do. You know, they've obviously been the story of this summer. Next year they'll probably draw a few of those hurler guys back to him. They'll probably have less guys go to America. I think I saw something about Atchison is going travelling or, or yeah, going to Dubai or something. To Dubai, yeah. Yeah, which will be a last them, obviously. But it'll be interesting to see now if their if their success this year draws a few of the few the other guys back and and if they do and with Kearns at the helm you know they have a chance of of you know being a quarter finalist again next year and 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 that's probably maxing out I think like this year they've overachieved completely mm. by getting to a semi-final and by and by pushing Mayo it was great I was really hoping that they wouldn't get a hammering by 10 points or something yesterday because it would have it would have deflated the football in the county again but um I mean they really you know they showed what they had in, in you know in their squad and the quality they had and um, I think they've just, you know, Karen's and everybody, they'll they'll enjoy their 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 points today and and for the next couple of weeks because they they really deserve them. Does it offer hope to other counties, Carol, or is this very much a self-contained kind of unit? Well, the t- the way I for just actually to go to kind of Roscommon angle for a moment, mm-hmm. like Roscommon would see Tipperary as one of the underage teams that we've come up with the last four or five years. And there are a number of other counties that have been on that kind of similar journey, like Cavan have had a similar Kildare. journey. Kildare. Yeah. And there are teams like that who have been competing at under and under 21 and minor at Ireland stage with these kind of players coming through. Uh, and along with the likes of Dublin, who obviously has very good teams as well. So yeah, for teams like that who have been able to identify a couple of really good players, like the ones Michael has mentioned, and a few more in defence, like Jimmy Fee and Bill Maher, like teams that see managements within other counties who see players like that on their own teams have to get great confidence from it yeah. and to be able to speak to their players in the same breath like Liam Kearns obviously spoke to them saying look what you've done in the last few years you've competed against Tipperary Dublin uh, Tyrone at these underage levels and these are all the players that are coming through and driving on their counties there's no reason why we can't do that here and it is about basically instilling that belief in them it's a, it's a hard thing to do from a management it's still, instilled that, it's still that belief Roscommon haven't done it just yet it's a little easier when teams like Tipperary are reaching the yeah. semi-final though yeah. you know? and like if you have guys that are, think they're as good as Michael Quinlevin and Conor Sweeney in these other counties uh, they should have no reason why they can't go on Club Park on big days of that and do the same thing yeah sounds great listen brilliant stuff as always Carol Manning, thank you Mike thanks very much thanks no matter FIFA made a movie recently did they? John Delaney could run anything they did, they did about themselves yeah about themselves God that's ego isn't it? he could run FIFA certainly better than Sam Blatter yeah that is that's incredible ego but the real movie's on its way yeah I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too don't forget that no no don't forget that in 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself. And I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you, with one or two explosives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, what I do? And that was it. With one or two explosives. And I just asked him to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds. And I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, yeah. there were some expletive views. We came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement, FBI. And you've used the figure there. Well done to you. Murphy got a little bit of abuse yesterday for an observation you made about the game. Well, I, I just suggested that Michael Quinlevin was the latest inmate on Keegan Island, uh, having been marked pretty effectively by Lee Keegan, as is now... Basically, it, the ultimate compliment you can be paid in Gaelic football is to be marked and, you know, harassed by uh, Lee Keegan. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean... It, but, but, but hang on, that doesn't sound like the most incendiary of no, statements. No, it's, I think it was uh, basically... It, it boils down to what you expect your best player to do 
on on you know the biggest stage. And Mikey Quinlevin kicked his freeze really well. Um, you know, tried very hard, won possession a couple of times out in front of Lee Keegan, but he had one shot on goal from play, which Hawkeye deemed uh, wide, and. He Keegan had basically reduced his role in the team to peripheral. And I was looking at it, obviously, from a jaundiced Galway perspective, where basically anywhere Quinlivan went, the ball followed against Galway. I mean, he must have touched the ball over 30 times, and every single time he touched the ball, he did something brilliant with it. Um, and, you know, it, it, if uh, Tipperary had four other players as good as Michael Quinlivan, then him kicking his frees and winning a couple of those frees would be enough. Unfortunately, he was never going to be near enough against Mayo for Quinlevin and Conor Sweeney as well to have the kind of game that Quinlevin ended up having. Um, and that's that's just it. And Keegan is just really, really good at this. Yeah, he's got to be in the running for Football of the Year this year because he's playing really well. He he also still gets forward. He, he still con- contributes in that kind of a way, which is insane. Yeah, um, I don't think he had really done it to the extent that we'd expect from him up until the Tyrone quarterfinal. But then, I mean, he kicks the last two points of the game. Yeah, you that's know? obviously what's sticking in my head. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at the same time, that's that's it. I mean, I think he's picking his moments a lot more maybe than he used to to bomb forward uh, to the effect that he has. But I mean, yeah, he would have to be, he would be Mayo's premier contender now, I think, for football. I mean, this is how football of the year goes. You know, it kind of muddles along till July and then you put three good games together and you're, yeah, of course, yeah. you're player of the year. But um, yeah, I mean, if it's Dublin, it'll be Jeremy Connolly and uh, that'll be a player cam that uh, Orti should probably think about, <laughs> should probably think about utilising. Uh, and if it's Kerry, I don't know who they'd put him on. I mean, there's... Uh, Maybe it's Donica Walsh. Does he go back into the corner to Mark James O'Donoghue? I mean, I, I think that would be a bit of a waste. That but, does seem to be, yeah. Yeah, but either way, it's th- that's the level that you get to. You know that Quinn Levin wins a few frees, kicks his frees against Lee Keegan. That's a pretty good day. You know, Mayo are happy enough with that. And like that's that's kind of the key point, that if, you, if your best player is breaking even, then, you know, then you're in trouble. Ken, you were up at the crack of dawn yesterday to watch the King... Who's back, according to himself? The king is back. Uh, Brand new. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we can. We can probably hear the whole announcement. Brand song. new yeah. world federation yeah. well, championship. Different weight division. Not featherweight and the championship. Different uh, weight division, welterweight. Uh, very good fight, actually. Very, uh, very enjoyable fight. Uh, went on for a long time and went the distance, longest fight that he's ever been involved in, and kind of seesawed quite a lot. You know, I mean, at the first. Um, First round, it looked as though McGregor was going to win actually quite easily, um, which had completely changed by the end of the second round when it looked as though he was already sort of beginning to get in trouble. Uh, the third round, it looked as though he was finished and he was saved by the bell on that occasion. And then the fourth round, he, he again was you know quite dominant. And at the end, um, it was you got the feeling, if it, had, if it had gone on until one of them won, Nate Diaz would have won. But of course, that's not how it works. It's, you know, everyone knows the, the rules. Everyone knows there's a limited uh, number of rounds here. And I think, did he win three rounds? I'd say he probably did. I mean, it was it was close. You could make an argument that it could have gone the other way. Definitely the result was one that I think suited absolutely everybody, including the loser. <laughs> <laughs> including the loser, Nate Diaz. Rematch on the cards. Well, this is the... Uh, <laughs> This is the thing. So, they're, so, so they're talking now. Uh, it's, it's. I mean, beforehand he'd been saying, "Oh, it's definitely going to be a, a trilogy." You know, don't, 
have no doubt about that. But the question is whether it will be whether he'll first have to fight some other people. Maybe he'll have to defend his belt, you know, his 145 pound belt. Maybe other things. I mean, he was hinting at all these sorts of things in interviews afterwards. He was saying, you know, there, there's lots of options. There's obviously been a change of ownership there. Um, you know, the the company has been sold. UFC has been sold. Um, so it seems as though he wants to kind of see how the relationship is going to be with the new ownership, uh, what their views are. What You know, he was saying, you know, what kind of slice of the pie I'm going to get. Because uh, obviously he's not shy about standing up for his own interests. He did describe himself as the four billion dollar man on Twitter. The four billion dollar man. Uh, I mean, which would suggest he, he he has a pretty good estimation of his value to the to the new ownership. Well, he's he's basing it on the fact that the thing the the thing changed hands for four billion. He's the only thing in it that anyone wants to watch. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so from that from that, but he you know he was saying they, my options may not even include this sport. You know what I mean? So he's kind of hinting at a at a huge range of possible things that he could do next which don't necessarily you know to, to try and you got to be able to walk away from the deal yeah you know there have um, been talk that the ticket sales hadn't gone as well for this one in advance well I'm not surprised I mean it, it's you know you, you keep having events in Las Vegas and it's eventually Irish people can't turn up in the same numbers I mean loads of them did arrive at that but there were mainly according to some of the guys who were there J1 students mm. you know guys who are in uh, people who are, who are over in uh America anyway for the summer, just go to Vegas and not necessarily even go into the fight, you know, because the tickets are ridiculously expensive. I and mean, when you add in all the expense of actually getting there and then the, the kind of, you know, wear and tear expenses of being in Las Vegas. It's a dump. It's, it's a dump. <laughs> um, although one, one kind of good sign about it was the, um, was the fact that I, as far as I can see, this is in the history of, of this uh, sport or company, whichever word you want to use. Um, it's by far the largest shared purse that, uh, for in terms of the two fighters for the main event. I mean, McGregor's is estimated at fifteen million, and Diaz is at thirteen million. Now, those those are unheard of figures for, um, you know, for 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 certainly for a loser in a UFC uh, fight. You know, even a big one like that. Um, the idea that Diaz could get thirteen million largely because he had a share also of the pay per view. Um, I mean, I think it's good. I think yeah. it's. I think. I think that's a, a last a little bit of justice in terms of, you know, a, a more significant share of the money that's generated yeah, by actually about going this in the past, to the people. The, the, the company generally do very well, and even the top fighters struggle sometimes. And this to is this is the kind of what they should. This is the kind of theme that McGregor's been talking more about recently. Because remember, we were criticizing him last year for his total lack of interest in, in sort of helping out anyone else or in sort of making... You wanted him to become a union man, Ken. You wanted him to become a sort of a shop steward. For well, he's, well he's, he's talking a lot more that way uh, recently. Really? But I think that has to do with the, the general cooling of his relationship with the company. So this is, it's, I don't think he's doing it because he's, he's experienced some kind of spiritual Damascene conversion. You know, he's like, oh, I'm going to help out the little guy. It's more tactical. Yeah. It's more like, this is what they don't, this is what they don't want. Uh, therefore... This is what I'm what I'm thinking. The fight was really interesting. You mentioned the sort of seesawing nature of it. At, at various times, one of them looked like the, they were gone. But even in, in the last round, there was there were so many occasions where McGregor was knocking, particularly early on, he was knocking Diaz down. He was really hurting him with that left hand. Three times he knocked him yeah. down. Yeah. So he's, he was getting a lot of kicks in, tiring tiring Diaz out and then knocking him down. I mean, basic enough stuff, I would say, at that level. Like, Diaz didn't seem to be able to defend, defend against either the kick 
or the punch. But then he was refusing to jump in. He did, obviously didn't want to wrestle with Diaz this time. Mm. Thought, yeah, I'll, I'll leave that side of the game. Even though I'm a master of all these arts, I'm going to leave the wrestling side of it apart if I can avoid it. And towards the end, he was doing a lot of running. Like he was throwing in jabs, throwing in shots. And then, and then r- running away. R- running away. And Diaz was calling him. Calling Trying him to back, taunt him back. Taunt him back, it, giving yeah. him the finger. He was flipping yeah. him the bird at one stage in the middle of the last round. And McGregor was staying. Not taking the bait. As he says, you win or you learn. He's, well, he said that John Kavanagh said that, and yeah. he learned from the last fight. Well, the, you know, that's, uh, and he mentioned John Kavanagh's book a few times as well. Uh, <laughs> he gave it a number of major media plugs. Uh, but, I mean, th- I thought that was quite an encouraging sign, because if you, if you remember how he was uh, over the, you know, he, he kind of kept succeeding the same way. He was just beating everyone quite quickly, and he eventually started to believe that he had magical powers. You know, he he did he he did. He's got a kind of a slightly magical belief system. At least he used to, you know, the the sort of law of attraction stuff, which he does, you know, believe in. Or at least used to. Uh, and the problem the problem with that is that it's it's totally crazy, <laughs> it's total nonsense, and it prevents you from learning. You know, because you, if you think that everything is is determined by how you feel about things or, or whether you can. I've got to feel more positive for the next fight. Exactly. For the rematch, I get, I, I've got to feel more positive. Now, this, this performance shows that he is actually capable of rational self-analysis and self-criticism. Looking at the last fight, going, I made a complete mess of this. I completely messed it up. You know, the whole, everything about this was different. Uh, everything about his, his tone and the build-up was quite different. It was quite, I mean, it, it, they did a, a funny press conference beforehand where he kind of went I mean he was throwing cans and he's yeah. throwing foot, you know I mean <laughs> I, you know this was like uh, that was that was that could have had some worse consequences than it than it did um, but his his whole approach was much more uh, paired back I mean if you saw him coming in coming into the ring he was completely deadpan completely serious if you remember the previous fight he was clowning around he was doing all this Prince Nassim type stuff you know he was kind of uh, grinning into the camera, and then oh, you know, and this time he was just staring. It was very sort of pared down. Gets into the ring, starts off the fight really cagey, not uh, not taking any risks, just doing. He's, he's obviously uh, made a plan. He's like, I'm going to use these kicks. Diaz will struggle to do it. And we we could see the success of that. You know, Diaz didn't know what to do. He's like, well, this isn't what I was what I was expecting. So he came up with a plan that was kind of tactically intelligent, totally different to what he was doing the previous time changing all the mistakes that he'd made and wins the fight as a result. So, you know, that was... Uh, and, and, and also did it largely, it seems, on, on one leg because he hurt his leg quite badly in the first round doing those kicks, which is why he didn't really see as much of them as the fight went on. But, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of showed that he's got the capacity for, um, for development or reinvention and progress as opposed to just thinking that he'll turn up and be... Conor McGregor and sort of bowl everyone out of his path just by the force of his, you know, his um, mind raise, you know? So that was good. And, and everybody gets to have another fight and make even more money. Uh, there is an fight. upside. Did out, you see how delighted Nate Diaz looked? <laughs> out of the despair of leaving this fight, <laughs> I suppose there is a thin shaft of silver lining for, for Nate Diaz. He was, yeah, he was the most, he was the happiest loser the most, you the most, twerp. the most contented loser I've ever seen. But you know, uh, it was a, it was a great fight. You can't say that it was uh, that, that it sort of sold people short. No, this of, one was yeah, it was a battle for the two of them. There, there were times when McGregor looked exhausted, 
really did look, even though he was consciously, as the commentator said, not punching himself out this time in the opening round, he still looked by the end of the third oh. to be gone. Well, he was taking a beat. I mean, that looked that looked to have, I kind of felt if that had gone on another 30 seconds, he he was gone. He claimed afterwards he wasn't. This is the third round. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. wobbling. He wasn't, like he hadn't been stunned. You know what I mean? He was still, it just looked, wor- it works, it looked worse than it was. But to me, I thought, this is, this is a death spiral, this particular uh, thing. But, the, you know, then the round was over, so, uh, and, and he managed to recover from that. Cavan is good with him in the corner as well. I, I do like their interactions. I didn't realise all, all the book plugs were going on as well. But listen, oh, yeah. you know, he obviously enjoyed John Cavan's book. And Mid-round now, to be good. That would be a ballsy <laughs> uh, push for a book, wouldn't it? Listen, Connor. Win or as learn. I said, <laughs> as I as said, I said, said win or learn. <laughs> chapter re- three. Recently released autobiography. <laughs> page 37 if you're reading it in the hardback. <laughs> Paperback will be out sometime after Christmas. But as I was saying. Huge story over the weekend in the Olympic Games. Castro Semenya's 800 metres victory. She ran it in a very good time. A personal best in New South African national record and it sounds as though she was just as impressive in how she dealt with all the questions afterwards about the fairness or otherwise of a hyperandrogenic woman competing without any limit on testosterone. Ross Tucker has been writing about this one. Ross, great to have you on. Uh, maybe tell us first of all, from the from the point of view of South African people, what has the reaction been like in the country? Yeah, uh, <laughs> volatile, um, regardless of position. Obviously, these are, these are issues that are extremely uh, sensitive at the best of times and then onto that you you overlay patriotism and a bit of nationalism and there are a few other different isms that also influence the perception so f- for the most part there's been overwhelming support of Semenya which is uh, understandable and fair enough I think it's typical in the Olympics but some of it is tinged with a great deal of aggression towards anyone who wants to discuss this as a concept and I, I think it's important to discuss it it's just such a shame that it involves an individual uh, and obviously, from the South African perspective, that's that's a recipe for uh, confrontation. Yeah, and it's—I mean—the person at the centre of it, Semenya, seems to have dealt with it. it. It's judging by the tone of some of the reports I was reading afterwards. I think journalists were almost surprised at how eloquent she was because. Obviously, it's not something she wants to go around talking about every day of the week, but it's unavoidable in a situation like this. And she was talking about how she wants to make a difference to her sport. She said, I think it's all about loving one another. It's not about discriminating against people. It's not about looking at about how people look, how they speak, how they run. It's not about being muscular. It's all about sport. When you walk out of your apartment, you think about performing. You do not think about how your opponent looks. So I think the advice for me to everybody is just to go out there and have fun. So, you know, as you say, while there's a lot of volatility around um, everything that's going on at the moment, it sounds like Semenya really kept her head both on the track and afterwards. She's amazing. She's actually, you know, in 2009, she was an 18-year-old who was exposed to all the scrutiny when she went and ran in Berlin. She won that world title. And that was when it was leaked that she was undergoing these these tests at the time. And it's difficult. You'd be hard-pressed to think of a a more invasive, difficult thing for an 18-year-old to go through in front of the whole world. And she's the only person who emerged from that whole thing with any dignity and, and uh, a great deal of class. So she is quite, uh, quite extraordinary in her, her, her strength and her resolve to be able to continue to run despite that. And, and again, she's getting some aggressive defenses, but she's, she's equally had a few very nasty, unfair uh, undignified attacks on her and the fact that she's continued to run with such a great deal of dignity is 
is remarkable. That's that's one thing no one in this issue can dispute is that she's she's quite an astonishing person. Those unfair attacks you talk about have they continued up until this weekend? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I th- I think there's always going to be within a population discussing something as controversial as this. There are going to be people who have informed opinions, and then there are going to be people who don't and don't care to find them. And they are the ones who then start to get a little bit nasty and they oversimplify what is what is quite a complex thing and it becomes very personal. And and I, you know, it's difficult here in South Africa to not personalize it because it, it obviously is in the news because of an individual. But the point I would continually try to make is that this is a concept and a policy issue, not an individual one. And there are probably at least half a dozen, maybe up to 10 to 12 athletes in the sport at the moment who have similar conditions. And we need a position that addresses the concept, not one or two individuals in an undignified, disrespectful way, you know? Ross, you you did explain in a blog post, a recent blog post, why you think that you think Caster shouldn't actually be allowed to run uh, in these races, at least, you know, you know, the, basically, why the why the race as it happens over the weekend shouldn't have been allowed to take place that way. You say that there are people who you know there are oversimplifications or, or misunderstandings. What are the kinds of oversimplifications and misunderstandings that you're talking about? Where, you know, what what about what's it about your argument that people take issue with? Yeah, sure. If I can just clarify, the policy until a year or so ago, which was then removed by the court was that females could compete as females. These athletes could compete as females, provided they had a testosterone level below a certain upper limit. And and that's the policy that I thought was the best compromise at this stage for this difficult situation. So it's not a question of saying that they can't compete as females. It's it's a question of saying that they shouldn't compete with the high levels of testosterone that they have. Um, So that's the one misunderstanding, is that it's, it's not about sport telling someone you're not a woman or, you, or you're a male. Uh, you know, if you go back in history, you will find plenty of examples where sport inserted itself into that gender identity conversation. And I think that's inappropriate. You know, sport has no place telling someone what they are or what they are not. Um, so I think that's, that's the first thing. The, the hyperandrogenism policy was created specifically so that sport could manage this issue without having to directly address whether someone was in fact male or female. And I know that to some extent that might sound semantic, but I, I do think it's an important distinction um, and a good, a good distinction because I think it was important for sport to get itself out of that debate. However, what you're still left with is this issue that testosterone is the hormone that is the root cause for what we call the primary sex characteristics now and the secondary sex characteristics. Now, Primary sex characteristics are those things that basically identify us as male or female at birth, and they go towards reproductive functions. So in other words, when you are born, the doctor says it's a boy or it's a girl based on his assessment of, of your external reproductive structures. That's, that's influenced by testosterone and, and one or two sort of family members. And then later in life, at puberty, testosterone is critical again because it's the root cause for the differences that separate men and women or boys and girls at, at puberty into two separate categories. So I felt that there was a good justification for creating categories for men and women in order to ensure some kind of sporting integrity 
and for using testosterone for that purpose because it allowed one to do that without this whole controversial gender identity issue. Now, to your question, the, the biggest misunderstanding or, or uh, ignorance, as it were, is one about this is not necessarily a gender sex issue. People can identify themselves as male or female. And secondly, arguments that are made saying that testosterone doesn't affect performance. Now, that to me is scientifically just false. It's clear that it does, but there's obviously a great deal of complexity within that. Mm. I mean, for instance, the, the, the reason why um, the race was allowed to take place is it was at the Court of Arbitration for Sport rule that the IAAF's rule, uh, you know, ruling that you know, athletes uh, like Castor Semenya had to take hormone treatment to, you know, to lower the testosterone levels was, you know, in their view, not legally enforceable. They, uh, and this was because of a case taken by an Indian runner, Duti Shant, who also uh, is hyper, hyper, uh, sorry, hyperandrogenic. And she competed in the 100 metres and didn't finish anywhere. You know, I think, I think she was 50th overall. So I guess the case there would be, this is, it's, it's not as though elevated levels of testosterone are, you know, an automatic uh, passport to the podium. Exactly. Now that you see is is one of the things that's come up often is that if if testosterone was all it took, then all men would beat all women. Now, I, I would argue that that's a straw man and that no one has ever said that, although I think people have oversimplified testosterone. And the analogy I would draw is, first of all, to ask this question is why do we have categories in sport, any category, whether it's an age category the men-woman category, or the other example that I've used is, is size in boxing. So a 94-kilogram boxer does not compete against a 65-kilogram boxer because we understand that size is such an important determinant that at the elite level, that difference would be decisive. In the general sense, it's not decisive, which is why I, sitting here, have a 90-kilogram guy, I would fight against your Olympic boxers and they'd all beat me, even though they're 60 kilograms or sometimes even smaller. Now, why is that? It's because they're more skillful, they're more technically capable, they're faster than I am, they're probably stronger than I am despite their, their relative lack of size. But the fact that they are better than I am does not disprove that science is important. All it means, uh, that size is important, sorry. All it means is that there are other factors that also have to be considered and that Size is not an insurmountable advantage. And I would say the same for testosterone. So Elaine Thompson wins the 100-meter title in, uh, in Rio. She's the fastest woman in the world. She's faster than 95, maybe 99% of men, no question. That doesn't mean that testosterone doesn't help the men. All it means is that she has so many other factors that she has added to her physiology to help her uh, overcome that. The key point to me is that if we didn't have a men's and a women's competition, Elaine Thompson would be beaten by a thousand men. She is. I mean, there are thousands of men every year who run faster than, than she can. And that's because when we look within a, a narrow range of the population, that male-female effect is so large that women would basically disappear from sport unless you had a category that allowed them to compete. So, that's the fundamental premise behind why we have separate categories. And again, to me as a physiologist, testosterone is the root cause, but not the only cause of that. And that's why I feel it, it needed to be defended as a category. But that oversimplification to me doesn't disprove its effects in the same way that 
when a smaller boxer beats a bigger one doesn't disprove that size matters. It just shows that the big one wasn't all that good. <laughs> yeah, Ross, when we were uh, doing a piece on this a couple of months before the Olympics, because obviously it was well flagged that this was going to come up. I mean, one of the parts we were wrestling with was why there actually should necessarily be a testosterone limit, why there should be a, a, a limit placed on an athlete, as you say, if they identify as a woman, on how much testosterone is naturally occurring in their body. I mean, the comparison we were making at the time was you've got seven foot two basketball players in the NBA and they've clearly got a natural advantage uh, you know an, uh, an almost abnormal natural advantage compared to somebody who's six foot five and trying to play in the same position so why is that fair in other sports and in other realms but it's not fair for female distance runners yeah so that's a good question now to the first part of that question there is a human rights or a social rights issue here where you're saying basically that a person has done nothing to specifically cheat. They have a natural advantage and we are then trying to police that specific natural advantage and there's something just not right in a human or social perspective. And, and that's an argument that I can't necessarily fault. I, I don't agree with it because my perspective is as a performance physiologist, but, but I can see where people would arrive at that conclusion using that set of arguments. However, what I don't think is valid is to compare the testosterone advantage, which, which as a scientist, again, I think exists and is real, to the height advantage in basketball for, for a couple of reasons. One, we don't compete in categories of height in basketball. Now, that, that might be wrong. I mean, we could quite easily argue and motivate to say that there should be an Olympic gold medal for players under six foot and an Olympic gold medal for players over six foot because it's clear that height does matter in basketball. So, it's not it's not unreasonable to ask the question is why do we have a category for men and women but not for for height and short or tall just on that if we did create that category and we had a cutoff saying six foot or taller plays one competition six foot and shorter gets to play the other the other one which we'll call the protected competition for short people a person who's now six foot one or six foot two cannot say that they're actually a six foot, uh, they're actually a five eight guy trapped in a six two body, as a result of a natural advantage, and now want to come down. If you if you have a category, I really do believe you have to defend the boundary between that. Now the category between men and women is a little more complex, but but the concept remains is that as soon as you have a category, you have to protect it. And the final point is the reason we don't have height for basketball can be debated, but I would offer that. Height in basketball is a less critical factor than testosterone on a, on a population level. And that's, the, that's because basketball being a technical sport, multiple positions, as you alluded to, you can succeed in basketball as a 6-1 player and you can succeed in basketball as a 7-1 player because there are so many different ways to win. Now, I don't want to oversimplify running or cycling or swimming, but it's certainly a little less complex than the, than basketball or a technical sport might be. So I, I think that the presence of the Y chromosome, which is what men have, the testosterone that it then results in, that to me is a more decisive, more material factor for performance than anything else in physiology and is the reason why we have those categories to protect, in a sense, the, the integrity of women's competition. So, So to me, they're fundamentally different, mainly because better or worse, we haven't decided to categorize by height. 
or muscle fiber type or big feet and long arms for swimming. So it, it's it's fundamentally different and therefore not relevant for me as an, an argument in that particular debate. I was watching the BBC's coverage of this race and Paula Radcliffe was explaining the IAAF's position in, in this area and she was saying that the position they have with the upper testosterone limits is that women will have to take the... Uh, it's, just, it's just amazing to me what, just watching an, an, a broadcaster talk about this uh, and making the point that the athletes would have to either take the medication to suppress the levels or they choose to have an operation or they choose not to compete. I mean, we we, we talk so much about doping and uh, an unfair, unnatural advantages that athletes try to get over each other and potentially harmful health effects of that. And then the a position of uh, that the IWF outline and the position that you feel is a good compromise, which is to set testosterone levels, implies uh, actually forces athletes into getting uh, invasive medical procedures or uh, having hormone treatments. Yeah, and that's the that's the social human rights issue that I alluded to earlier. Because because when you present it in that way, and you say, so are you seriously going to say that? To, in order to compete in sport, you actually have to undergo surgery to change your natural body. Then you then you start to your sort of eyebrows go up and you say like, is that not a radical approach for sport to take? And I completely understand that, and I can't fault that argument uh, from a human rights, ethical, social rights point of view. As I said, I, I I approach it from a different direction, which is as a performance physiologist, and I look at the the sporting rights of athletes who then compete in these events where they are then competing against someone who is biologically not not in a different category. If I said that, I would be oversimplifying it. But, but in these intersex individuals, you're dealing with someone who is genetically or, or whose chromosomes put them into a different category. But for whatever reason, they, they couldn't... Uh, complete the journey uh, physically towards that that category. So you're dealing with people who are chromosomally male, but then who couldn't develop uh, the features, the phenotype is what we call it, of of male. So I sympathize with those athletes. And and because it's a performance biology thing for me, my my end conclusion is that the lowering of those testosterone is the compromise. But I cannot fault, I think, what is your uh, disbelief or, or discomfort maybe mm. in, in terms of what the policy would then involve. Yeah, yeah, I suppose discomfort is yeah. the way of phrasing. Listen, Ross, always great to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks a million. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it and uh, good luck, yeah. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Just on this idea of hormone treatment and medical surgeries, this isn't some sort of hypothetical idea. It's a, it's a real thing. I mean, this has been happening. The, Andy Bull wrote a piece for The Guardian, and he mentioned that several hyperandrogenic athletes have undergone major surgery at the behest of athletic officials, uh, including in 2013, four young female athletes from developing countries. They all had atypically high but entirely natural levels of testosterone. They went off to a clinic in France, got these serious procedures carried out, and a year later they returned to competition. 
So it it is the case, you know. And that's what I can't really reconcile. I, I understand a lot a lot of what the way Ross argues his points and the standpoint that he comes at it from. But it's just it's it's, it's so so complex. But that part of it's tricky. It's also another tricky ethical part of it is the fact that the other athletes who won medals were both subjected to the same kind of questions. They were asked. They've never uh, so all three were asked to comment on whether the IAAF had made them take hormone treatments to suppress their testosterone levels, and if so, what effects those treatments had. Uh, after a brief consultation with each other, all three refused to answer. Now, those two other girls have uh, n- neither of them have identified as hyperandrogenic, and yet they're being asked those sort of questions as though they have. So. It's uh, yeah, it's complex stuff. Yeah, I mean the same Andy Bull article you mentioned there on uh, makes reference to Nigel Levine, um, teammate of Lindsay Sharp, who finished sixth for Britain, uh, and he wrote on Twitter, "Happy for Lindsay Sharp for coming third in women's eight hundred meters." So there's a, you know, there are, there are, there are people who kind of look at the race and consider mm-hmm. that the one two three that none of none of these athletes should have been allowed to compete. I mean, I think it's really difficult. I mean, what, what Ross was saying, Ross said a couple of times, I'm, I'm coming at this from the perspective of a, from a physiological perspective, mm-hmm. which is to say, not really considering, I mean, and, and the point that he was kind of finishing on, not really considering that if you were to come at it from a human rights perspective, you might come to a very different conclusion. So the, where it becomes really complex is which is more important. And if you're talking about a rule that says you either have to take you either have to take surgical measures, you have to take hormone treatment, or you can't compete. That's there's something really yeah. wrong with that. You know what I mean? That's just uh, which is why is so, but but you know then then you're left with an insoluble issue. You know what I mean? Uh, what what are you going to prioritize? I think you actually have to prioritize the sort of human right. I think it's more important. Mm. I think it trumps the other consideration. Um, you know and. I kind of feel as though Castro Semenya, despite the fact that I think she obviously does have an advantage, nevertheless should be allowed to compete. It's it's simply her advantage. That's that's the way yeah. it is. I mean, we were, there there were there were all kinds of uh, interesting things written about this. Um, I mean, Ross referred to you know referred to some of the criticism, for instance, that he's had, not just him. Um, well, you can imagine, particularly writing what he's been writing in South Africa. So yeah. if you could imagine Caster Semenya is Irish, all the glory that goes with that, uh, winning an Olympic gold medal, and then an Irish physiologist r- writing that actually she shouldn't be there. Yeah, I mean, there was one one very interesting piece was written by uh, Jennifer Doyle, um, who was at From a Left Wing on Twitter. I mean, it's interesting. I say interesting because it was it was it was a long, thoughtful and thought provoking piece. I, I don't think I necessarily agree with a lot of its reasoning, but it does kind of lay out some of the some of the points of view. You need to say um, this is the, the the point of view in this case. Well, that's uh, the the final line is let her leave her sisters in the dust and laugh, to, laugh her way across the finish line. So, you know, let us hope she sets one world record after another and that these records stand for a hundred years as a cosmic payback for the shit she's been through, the shit every woman has been through. Cis, trans, black, brown, poor, gay, promiscuous, pregnant, abortive, sick, underworked, underpaid and pissed off. Let her leave her sisters in the dust and laugh her way across the finish line. So, um you can see, obviously, that the, the point of view here is that Kasha Semenya should be allowed to compete and should be celebrated as an athlete. Also, you can detect a, an emotional kind of a tone of anger, definitely, uh, with uh, with this 
with this reasoning. But she does mention Ross Tucker. I'm sure Ross has, has actually seen it. She's not impressed uh, by his uh, speaking about it. Neither Malcolm Gladwell, some people might have seen uh, this piece that was in the New Yorker, Malcolm Gladwell and Nicholas Thompson. Uh, who ha- It was one of these back and forth type pieces um, where they were discussing and they also, they, or Gladwell was saying, oh, you know, I think she shouldn't be allowed to compete, definitely. it's uh, And his logic was, if sport is the um, voluntary acceptance of, uh, where, where's the line? The voluntary acceptance of, of unnecessary obstacles. Uh, in other words, every sport has rules mm-hmm. and, it, and it's, it's meaningless without, the rules are kind of what make the sport. It's like, you know, we're going to do this and this is, we're going to, within these parameters, this is what we're going to try and do. And if you, and if you kind of take away the rules, then you, you're left with kind of meaningless. It's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, and if you're going to have a category for women's athletics, um, then it's, it's, it's meaningless to allow people who have, you know, almost male advantages to compete in that. You know what I mean? It, it's, you know, because the category of women's athletics, I mean, I'm kind of now beginning to repeat what Ross was trying to explain to us. Um, but this is what he's saying. Now, she, she doesn't, Jennifer Doyle does not see this as a, um, as a good point. Um, she makes the point that, well, she, she suspects essentially a lot of bad faith on behalf of people who are making this argument. Um, and I'll just read you some of, some of the, women's sports is not a protected category she says, it is instead the category that takes the most beatings. Malcolm Gladwell and Nicholas Thompson refer to her body with an invasive clinical language that masks their ignorance about it. This casual discussion of physical difference is an appalling rhetorical echo of the sexual violence of lynching campaigns. It resonates too with the murderous violence directed at gender non-conforming people the world over. Uh, I've not seen anything like this sustained level of aggression in reporting on Katie Ledecky, whose dominance in her sport is much more spectacular than Semenya's. Um, what makes... Whereas Ledecky is subject to hushed speculation, the media approaches Semenya as if she were a walking scandal. What makes one athlete's super dominance appear like victory and another like theft? What makes people agree on the need to protect one kind of athlete from another, if not the queerness of her blackness? In an extraordinary bit of group masturbation, Gladwell and Thompson cite some more men to make Semenya's exclusion appear as if it were necessary to maintain the structure of athletics. So, I mean... So, so Jennifer Doyle is seeing, I'm, I'm citing Jennifer Doyle as maybe the most detailed or the most articulate um, piece that's been written from this point of view. Um, it's suspecting a lot of bad faith, really, all, all around. You know, these men sort of mansplaining. The idea that, that like, if men are saying something on like this, there must be bad faith is, is an opinion that I, as a man, find, <laughs> find irritating. You know, I'm, I'm a big, pompous Imagine a big pompous old turkey there with his feathers being ruffled and it's uncomfortable. Mm. That's me. Right? As, a, as a man, I find the idea that just being a man kind of kind of disqualifies you to express an opinion, to be... I think it's difficult to have any kind of argument about it. The idea that there's an invasive... There's something um, also appalling about this invasive clinical language. There is a certain scientific element to this. Yeah. You know, there, there is a kind of a clinical aspect to the whole question, you know, so I don't, I don't see how I mean, you can you talk can't, about it without talk, using, of course you can't. without using those uh, terms. Whether that moment is figured by sports officials and press as a kind of transcendence or as crime for which she must be punished has everything to do with the colour of the athlete's skin. Really? I mean, I'm, I, I yeah, haven't I, seen... I think there's a huge amount of sympathy for everyone involved in this situation. I mean, I, I, the way it's been covered is, I mean, if you read anything, you know, that has even the slightest bit of detail about this case... 
it's obvious that every that no one knows what the right thing to do here is. I mean, this idea that there is a certainty about what should happen, what's the fairest thing to do. I don't think anyone can stand and say, well, I think everything that's been said is ridiculous. Here's the deal. Here's what I think about this situation. And this is fair to everyone else. Mm. I mean, I, I think that there's, there's an there's a understanding across the world that this is an extraordinarily complex issue and there is no correct answer to it. And we're all just feeling our way blindly in the dark to try and get to an answer that's most fair to the most amount of people without, as you say, infringing on the basic human rights. Or, or, or fair, I mean, if you if you look at it in terms of what's most fair to the most amount of people, yeah, well, then it's obvious you can't let Castro Semenya run. Precisely. Because, but, to, because it's, it's all of these, there, yeah. there are many, many more women competing who, don't, you, who aren't high testosterone. So if you just want to make a utilitarian kind of point, you know, what's fair for the most amount of people, then she's out. But if the question is, which value is more important... Yeah, then and if you're the IAAF, then you know you're not coming at it. you. Can you come at it as a basic human rights issue, or do you have? A, can you afford not to? Yeah, if you got if you got like a human rights question at stake, can does that not sort of trump all other? Yeah, this is why it's difficult. All right, promote the hell out of the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast now, please. Go. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely, man? Why can't they be more like the Olympians, Owen? It's the question that some people are still asking. Despite the fact that we've just seen the most disgusting rotten Olympics <laughs> that have ever taken place, oh. it's not a great time to make this argument. I'm going to no. say. I was thinking that there there wasn't really much of this argument about compared to last time, um, and it's true there actually hasn't been as much. But today they all kind of bang, bang, bang. You know, people obviously had been told you're you're on the why can't they be more like Olympians uh, piece? Mm. Oh Christ! So. We won't be talking too much about that, although you might make mention of it, because, you know, there was football on, on the usual stuff. Um, Diving, simulation. Naked cynicism, vile uh, chanting. And we loved every minute of yeah, it. Yeah, obscene sums of money <laughs> in the transfer market. Do you know how, much a, how many hospitals you could have built and all this kind of stuff? Just average footballers, Ken, going for lottery numbers. Average you know? footballers. Why, why do they get paid so much money? Okay, I mean, it's because of market forces. Sports are popular and everyone loves it. You know, <laughs> but, they're you know, absolutely amazing at their sport, but I mean... Yeah. Is it right, Owen? We will be alluding to this question, although not spending too much time in it, in the football show. I got to about 20 to 10 yesterday, and the basketball dream team had finished wrapping up a rather one-sided victory over Serbia. Who did, some would say didn't quite turn up to the final, uh, but I'd watch that. I was around watched Jimmy McCarthy doing his stuff there. Then I realised, hang on a second, when's this over? 10 o'clock. The Ortiz coverage is over 10 o'clock. Sure, the opening closing ceremony. I'm not really a closing ceremony. I'm not really an no. opening. I'm not a ceremony kind of person, to be honest with you. So I didn't watch the opening and I didn't watch the closing. So I figured, well, okay, well, it's got to be something. You know, surely BBC will still be mm. doing something here. Switch over to BBC. They, they'd already finished. They hadn't lasted as long as 10 o'clock. I went, okay, grand. I'll go over to BBC4. I'll watch Dan Walker on Cope Glan Beach talking to bin men, um, the hen parties, watching people supposedly reading a book, a couple. 
in the distance, both lying down on top of each other. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff BBC Four have been doing this wacky kind of stuff. And actually, I have to say, I've, I've quite did it out, I, old, but I've enjoyed I've it. I've quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Dan Walker was finished. He wasn't even there. They weren't even doing a show from the beach on that night, or not from his mm. spot anyway. It's all over, is what I came to realise. The whole freak show is over. Although, you know, judging by the ticketing scandal story and one or two others, mm. I think there, I think there are some plots that have begun during the Olympics that will like develop the, and continue The last after. half hour of the last Lord of the Rings movie, you know, there's <laughs> a lot of loose ends that yes, still need to be tied up. Still need to be tied up, yeah. You know, you've, you've gotten to the, the meat and drink of it is finished, but there is still what happens to Frodo? a dessert what course. Ha- what happens to Frodo? Thanks again. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Thanks for listening. I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too. Don't forget that. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.